Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. Now, when it comes to military aviation, among the most popular topics for us air power aficionados are the world wars, right? World War I and II. And as many of our listeners are probably aware, it's that in-between period, the interwar years, that are so crucial for the development of air power. There's new theories, new doctrines, and new technologies being developed at a very rapid pace in between the wars. And we usually talk about those aspects related to U.S. or British air power, maybe German. But what about outside of those places, right? Air power still played a major role in the former colonies of Australia and New Zealand, areas that were very key locations for the Allies once World War II started. So to tell us all about it, we're joined today by Dr. Alex Spencer, curator of European aircraft and flight material at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and author of British Imperial Air Power, the Royal Air Forces and the Defense of Australia and New Zealand Between the World Wars from Purdue University Press. Alex, thanks so much for being here. Oh, Mike, I appreciate the offer and the opportunity to come on and, and chat with you about my book tonight. Sure thing. Well, why don't you tell us first, what got you into this project in the first place? Why write a book about Australia and New Zealand air power? It really comes from two uh, different paths that kind of my career followed. First was that I was absolutely fascinated by the uh, fleet to Singapore strategy that came out in 1919 under the Imperial Tour of Fleet Admiral John Jellicoe right after the end of World War One, And I was just fascinated about that, how that strategy came about and, and how immediately after the war, the British were looking for another opponent or where were, where were their defense problems going to lie. And before the Inc. had even, uh, they had even gotten to uh, Versailles signing the peace treaties, Jellicoe was out searching the empire for a new way to do it. And, and of course, the Jellicoe strategy ends up with the destruction of Force Z on December 10th, which was the HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Repulse that kind of was the end result of the Jellicoe strategy. And what it was, was that uh, if something brewed out in the Pacific, he would send the fleet out there, or the British would send the fleet out there and build this major new naval base at Singapore. And I know this kind of is an odd way to get into an air power issue looking at naval power, but um, that was kind of what took me in. But what I was also fascinated by was that there was just gallons of ink spilled on the flink to Singapore strategy by naval historians. But really, they're kind of the looking at the air defense of the Pacific was kind of left behind because it seemed to be such a small aspect of imperial defense that it, and the, the players were equipped with four airplanes. So, of course, it just it was natural that they were going to face the same fate. So that that was one avenue of it. And the second avenue of it was when I first came to the museum in the early uh, in late 1989 and into the early 1990s, the museum put on a air power symposium on the rise of strategic bombing. And every lecture you listen to, the participants always would point to the major air power doctrine people, the Douais and the Trenchards and the Billy Mitchells, etc. And talking about how the primary focus of an air force was strategic bombing. And that, of course, leads a direct path to the destruction of Hamburg and Dresden. And I, I started asking the question of these folks, well, if, they're, if the British RAF focus was strategic bombing, 
Why did they have such lousy airplanes at the beginning of the war? Why did Bomber Command have just pathetically bad airplanes? And you look at things like the Hanley Page Harrow and the Hanley Page Hampton, not very good airplanes. The Vickers Wellington, a two-engine medium bomber, was, was a pretty good airplane out of the lot that they had. And along with that, also the Bristol Blenheim. But then they would have planes like the Armstrong Whitley, which was just an absolutely atrocious airplane, could barely fly. And I always love it that it was also featured in the premiere 2000 film Chicken Run, that the chickens were going to escape their prison flying out in, a, in an Armstrong Whitworth Whitley. But anyways, and again, with the RAF, they did not even have a four-engine bomber until the first year of the war and the, with a short Sterling, another not a very good airplane, but that doesn't even make its first flight until July 1940 at the height of the Battle of Britain. So I would ask the question, what was going on? And I always kind of was treated in the manner of W.C. Fields, like, go away, kid, you're bothering me when I asked the question about that. So anyways, that's what kind of led this. I wanted to find out what the RAF was actually thinking in the interwar period and how was the RAF going to participate in the defense of the Far Eastern Pacific, which was going to be the key of the empire in that interwar period, since Europe now in ashes from World War One was not going to be the focus at that point. So those were the, uh, the two avenues that I was following when I was looking at this question of British imperial air power between the wars. You mentioned a few things there I want to kind of unpack. And the first one, you know, you're talking about Singapore and its its importance. And that's something that comes up again and again in the book is how important Singapore is in right. conceiving of, you know, air defense. What is it about Singapore that makes it so important and such a focus of air defense strategy? Well, yeah, for the British, uh, Singapore, you just kind of look at it geographically as, as to its position within the empire. And Singapore was chosen because of its strategic location that you could base a fleet there that could radiate out from Singapore and thus could support almost north to the north coast of Vietnam down to the north coast of Australia was about the range that the British fleet could sail out from there. And also by being there, they could protect both the dominions of Australia and New Zealand out to the east of Singapore, but also they could protect the even the more important jewel in the crown, India, by being positioned in, in, uh, in Singapore. The other thing you mentioned in that first answer was strategic bombing, right? And playing such an important role as an idea during this period. So that's the kind of the first question I had when I first picked up the book was, I wonder how much does that idea carry over, right? We all, we've all heard that famous Stanley Baldwin quote about the bomber always gets right. through. And, you know, this kind of idea of strategic bombing taking hold in the 30s. How much of that doctrine carries over to Australia and New Zealand? That's the interesting, and that's that was what my research kind of points to. And the answer is not at all. And I'm looking at what Trenchard's actually talking about during the interwar period, during his tenure as Air Chief Marshal. The documents prove over and over again, from my perspective, that he was not thinking about strategic bombing. There was a couple of aspects to Trenchard and his strategy for the RAF that he was most concerned about. First off, there were three opponents that the RAF faced that were foremost in Trenchard's mind, and they were the British Army the Royal Navy and the uh, British Treasury. Um, and those were his <laughs> those were his enemies, not not the Japanese. Or, uh, right. And that was who he had to protect the RAF from. The listeners, I'm sure, know that the RAF was created during the World War One, towards the very end of the war uh, in defense of Britain against the German bombing campaign, but was created out of the Royal Naval Air Service, as well as the Army Flying Corps uh, to create the RAF. But if you look at what he's talking about at the end of World War One, a month after the war ends, 
he talks about what the role of the airplane and what the Air Force is going to be. And he's talking about the question of aerial defense of the empire. And he, he said this cannot be overrated with those pertaining to purely national requirements. The foundation of air power is the British Empire and must be very well truly laid with that as the consideration. So in these documents that come out after the war, he's not talking about strategic bombing. He's talking about how the RAF can participate in protecting the empire. So you have a number of activities start taking place, which was probably the most famous of which was the was the aerial policing policy, which airplanes were used to transport troops around in very small numbers, but also to bomb, you know, insurgents that that may be operating uh, within the British Empire. And this was a way for the RAF to have a have an activity in the post-war world, which they didn't have a tradition of like the British Army and the Royal Navy had it at that point in time. They had centuries of activities in the empire and protecting the empire was how from within and from without was how Trenchard viewed the role of the RAF would be. And with that said, he sends out a task just like Jellicoe did with defense of the empire. In 1919, he sends out, it's not as glamorous of a position, but he sends out a group captain by the name Arthur Bennington to talk to the Australians and New Zealanders particularly about what the future role of those two uh, dominions were going to be within the within the defense of the empire from afar. And Bennington in 1919 writes up some very specific recommendations for New Zealand uh, in particular as to what they need to do to participate in, in the aerial defense of the empire. And we're not talking strategic bombing. There's no factory. There's no troop concentration. There's no transportation systems that they have to take care of. There, we're talking about planes that are used, uh, you know, torpedo bombers and, and such that they could protect the empire. And again, getting back to the idea of who the opponents are, they would do it on the cheap. You can put together a couple of squadrons of aircraft together that would they would argue would be the same as in the defense realm as, as a very expensive battleship or cruiser. And these squadrons could replace those ships. And then, of course, you have a much less expensive defense, but just as powerful from, from what they argued. Yeah, this is what's so interesting. I think as an Americanist, it's easy for me to forget sometimes that the British are dealing with a very different setup in terms of a geopolitical, geostrategic situation. Yeah. One of the things that leads me to kind of want to know more about is, you know, you mentioned the RAF forming as an independent air force, one of the earliest, if not the earliest independent air force. And it's not long after that, that we get an independent Australian and New Zealand air force. How does that come about so quickly, these independent air forces? And what is the relationship like between all these forces and, and how they're talking to each other? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Mike. And one of the key features about why the two dominions set up air forces so quickly. Now, I have to make one comment real quickly that the New Zealanders were very late to the game as to setting up an independent air force. Theirs was always operated under the control of both the Army and Navy in New Zealand. But the Australians in particular set up an uh, independent air force on the 31st of March uh, in 1921. So they are, I believe, I want to say they are the second independent air force in the world. I think they've beat the Royal Canadian Air Force by just a few months. But anyways, with that said, there was an interesting relationship with the RAF within the empire in comparison with the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy always saw personnel of, of the Dominions as being part of just a 
auxiliary. Well, actually, I guess the best way to put it was they they're just extra personnel that they can put into their ships. So with the RAF, they actually started pursuing a partnership with the Dominions where they recognized that they needed the support of the Dominions. And the Dominions were at this point wanted that independence. But also at the same time, they with the formation of their air forces, they saw it as an opportunity to save money again that you could set up the the Australians and New Zealanders weren't prepared to pay for for a large number of ships and large formations being ground formations after World War One, and again bought into the argument that an air force could do the defense of the Dominion inexpensively as well. And so they were quite ready to work in partnership with that. And at that point also, the RAF looked at the geopolitical situation as well and were quite willing to, to allow the Dominions on their own for their own defense from the aviation side of things, whereas the Army and Navy were still considered just a adjuncts of, of the central power of London. Yeah, and you mentioned that money is a continual issue here. You know, mm. it's come up a couple times and it's a feature throughout the book. You know, obviously there's a global depression in the 20s and yeah. into the 30s. So that's kind of affecting everybody around the world. And air power is not cheap, as we all know. Yeah. But it seems like right around 34, but certainly in the early to mid 1930s, things really change all of a sudden. And there's this kind of air power buildup starts happening. Why is that? What changes in the mid 30s that uh, leads to this increase? If you don't mind, Mike, I'd like, just kind of like to jump back with that, that with that, there was a harsh movement within the British government during the 1920s, led by uh, Eric Geddes, who was the chairman of what was called the Committee of National Expenditure. And they sent out word that all government departments were to expect a, a across the board 35 percent cut of every government budget. And the militaries were even harsher than that. And and the RAF was actually anticipating a cut of almost 50 percent. So so that was what they were facing. Now, if we move up along those lines again, the RAF was concerned about being reabsorbed back into the other two militaries. And that theme keeps going through the entire interwar period or, or up to the 1930s. But just before uh, Trenchard retires in in 1929, he issues one last document that I consider very significant, and it's titled The Fuller Employment of Air Power in Imperial Defense that was issued on November 22nd, 1929. This document uh, by Trenchard, Trenchard goes directly after the Navy and the Army on this and argues specifically that he could create an air force with three squadrons of of aircraft would equal the cost of one British cruiser in an against attack against the the Navy. And then he also argues that at that point, the army was responsible for shore defenses. So gun emplacements and things like that, protecting ports around the empire. That was the uh, army's responsibility. And Trenchard again argues that, that two squadrons could replace an entire shore battery that the army would re be responsible for. And of course, the, he argues very clearly in very precisely about the cost of benefit of these changes over into replacement of cruisers and, and gun emplacements and uh, and shows very clearly how how fewer personnel are used by the Air Force and they're much more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, again, he goes on the offensive, arguing this is how this is going to this is going to be the best way to defend the empire again. Once again, the RAF sends another 
another mission out to the Empire trying to uh, get the Australians and uh, New Zealanders together to improve the aerial defense of the Empire because they felt they were falling behind because of, of the budget cuts that took place earlier uh, under Gettys. That's fascinating. So how do they end up bouncing back from this kind of in the mid-30s? What gives them this impetus to kind of grow before the war starts? Yeah, again, you know, budget cuts, etc., and pressures on the British government because of the Great Depression were as severe in Britain and Australia as they were here in the United States. I mean, the scenes of red lines uh, in New York City are replicated in Sydney and Wellington and London just as much as they are here. But the thing is, is that there was no threat at that point of time. But the, really what happens is you have a return of the uh, what I would call the return of the international crisis in 1931. You have uh, Japan invading Manchuria with the Manchurian crisis in, on September 18th, 1931. And then you also have Hitler uh, becoming chancellor of Germany on January 30th, 1933. So you, you have two things that are going on. Now, with that said, when Hitler takes power, you have to understand that the British were used to Germany switching governments every six months to every year. There was a constant turnover and instability within Germany. And that instability actually was great for defense because there was no, the Germany could not become organized. And the British were very, were were kind of curious about the character of Hitler, and they weren't so sure about him. But within a year, they're convinced now that there's something here with the rise of Germany under Hitler. And just literally 11 months um, after Hitler takes power, the British form the Defense Requirements Committee on November 3rd, 1933. And they start looking into what are the defense requirements needed for the empire and for Britain specifically in Europe and against Germany. In response to that, the RAF comes up with a 52 squadron plan. And then interestingly enough, and this is the, and this again is in the documents, in the discussions of the Defense Requirements Committee, there is a quote that I that absolutely fascinated me. As I said, the RAF puts forward a 52 squadron plan and Chancellor of the Exchequer says, if the Air Force agreed that that's all that was required, it is another matter. Personally, I'm inclined to think that they are asking for too little. Here's the Chancellor of the Exchequer saying, you folks are asking for too little money for the defense requirements of the of the empire. And who's the chancellor of the exchequer? Neville Chamberlain. This characterization of Casper Milktoast Neville Chamberlain from the Munich crisis in 1938 is blown away for me by this quote. And Chamberlain dismisses the RAF request for 52 squadrons, and he expands their request uh, and says, you're going to get 75 squadrons at home defense and uh, expands their budget from 2.4 million pounds to 10.85 million pounds in one year. And so I think that's quite telling what they they considered the problem uh, going forward against Hitler's uh, Nazi Germany. And again, this $10.85 million goes to the development of two new airplanes that happened to be the most important airplanes at the Battle of Britain, uh, the Hurricane and Spitfire, uh, as well as money going towards the creation of, of the home chain stations or radar as we now know it as well. And so the British economy, the British situation was, they were in such trouble created by the depression is that um, they had to put millions and millions of pounds into the expansion of factories and infrastructure, things that are not terribly sexy that you do not see. But again, by the time World War II breaks out and really gets going along, although the British had severe trouble up and up through the Battle of Britain, the monies that were put into this infrastructure structure in the early 1930s began to pay dividends uh, almost immediately by the end of the battle. 
Battle of Britain, where British production, aircraft production is outstripping uh, German aircraft production, a fact that is kind of lost on folks at times as well. So yeah, that's a fantastic new way to look at Chamberlain. Yeah. So once we get this kind of build up going, and they've got all these new squadrons to fill, you know, it's clear that in Australia and New Zealand, they're putting a lot of kind of British and US aircraft to use in a mixed way. And it seemed like there was some controversy about that. Can you talk a little bit about how those squadrons are formed? Like what are Australia and New Zealand flying and why does that matter? Again, the, a lot of the problem was is Australian and New Zealand at this point in time are still flying World War One aircraft as their principal aircraft in their air forces. And again, they made a conscious decision as well not to spend money on airplanes. They were spending money on the infrastructure of an air force. They were building airfields. They were building command colleges and, and, and such and training centers. That was what they put their money into. And they quite recognized that if they put their money into aircraft, that was not the best way to spend their money because the progress of aviation and, and aircraft technology was so rapid that as soon as they would purchase an aircraft, that it would be obsolete within months, if a year, if not months. So they recognized that fact. And so they put their money into other things that would do so. Now, the problem with the uh, RAF expansion plans, they had a series of schemes, A through H, and they, they were actually changing things around quite frequently as the international situation changed around them. But what ended up happening was the British were not really prepared to give up their aircraft. They were in such need of them, and the production was so was so tight that they were not prepared to provide them to Australia and New Zealand in the numbers that those two dominions needed and requested. And at that point in 1935 and 1936, during the, the expansion plans that those two dominions had for their air forces, they, uh, in particular, the Australians now turned to the uh, United States and they sent a uh, commission to the United States uh, to start dealing and talking with the um, aircraft manufacturers on the West Coast, the North Americans and Boeings and Lockheeds, et cetera, where they were able to, you know, make the discussions very easily up and down the West Coast, which was, again, conveniently lo uh, located for them across the Pacific. Uh, so anyways, at that point, uh, the Australians make a, a deal. In 1936, they form the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation. And essentially, the CAC had agreements with North American to build North American aircraft with Australian materials. And then uh, with that, the Australians come up with a couple derivative designs of, of North America's SNJ. It was the originally the NA-10, the North American 10, but becomes the, the SNJ as we know it. They start, again came up with derivative designs of the North American airplane with the boomerang and the whirlaway that, that saw service in World War II. But then also you see um, the purchase of from Lockheed, the Lockheed Hudson and Lockheed converting the uh, aircraft from a transportation aircraft into a small medium patrol bomber for the Australians. So that's that's ended up how they, you know, the connection that they, they made with the United States. At first, it was seen as kind of anathema with the RAF that going to use American designs and American equipment. But again, I, the, the British kind of in the end shrug their shoulders and say, well, we can't get you the planes. 
So go ahead. You're you're only going to be helping us out if you expand with with American aircraft. But interestingly enough, the uh, New Zealanders wait and wait and wait for British designs and are equipped with really actually fairly obsolete aircraft as part of their expansion plans. By the time World War II rolls around, all the Royal New Zealand Air Force in the Pacific is almost exclusively using American designed aircraft in the end. That's really fascinating. You make this strong case that even though they're using American aircraft and uh, they have like independent air forces, these air forces in Australia and New Zealand are still very tied to England and the RAF, especially in terms of training. And there's kind of this training scheme that was really interesting. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that was working for all these pilots. Yeah. What comes out um, as the expansion moves forward by the two dominions and the Royal Air Force back in Britain was that they did recognize that they did need to work together. And training was considered uh, an essential aspect of that, where by training together or and using the same methods and, and same stratagems, that would only prove more fruitful uh, in a wartime situation. So again, that was formalized in the summer of 39 uh, before the outbreak of war. But it was clear that it was on the horizon that the Empire Air Training Scheme was created. And what that did was it created a series of schools for both piloting and air crews in Canada. The training would be safe Canada uh, out of a war zone in the Pacific uh, with the threat of, of the Japanese, in particular in, in Britain as well, that if you set up these schools in Canada, they could train unmolested by the threat of attack <laughs> by those two powers. A vast majority of trainees that go to Canada are funneled into Europe into RAF squadrons in particular as the war does progress, particularly into the RAF Bomber Command. But again, probably about 25% of them do return to Australia and New Zealand in defense of the Dominions down there. And that, again, it was quite critical for the Air Forces because it enabled them to expand very rapidly during those early years of World War II. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I mentioned kind of earlier on, you know, that this interwar period is so important and so foundational for so many different countries and Australia and New Zealand are certainly no exception there. But looking back at all this, what do you think has been kind of the biggest legacy of this time period for these countries in question? And when it comes to Australia and New Zealand, especially, but also broader than that, do you think there are any kind of lasting effects that kind of filter down through the years from this time period? You know, personally, I think the most important thing looking at it was was the actually the creation of the independent air forces. And that is the you know, that is the legacy that has remained. They still are are independent within the framework of both countries, defense networks uh, and and in Britain, of course, and that you have the uh, tradition created uh, at that point of time that, yes, uh, air force is is an important independent military arm, just as important as the uh, army and just as important as the Navy. That that third dimension, it doesn't matter if what the aspect of it is, is it what, what the airplanes are doing, but they're critical participants in the defense of the realm. And I think that it remains that way today. And um, there's a very strong tradition that has been formed and, I, and a very strong tradition in the dominions remains today. That's great. Well, for those listeners who want to check out the foundations of that tradition, I recommend you check out British Imperial Air Power, the Royal Air Forces in the Defense of Australia and New Zealand Between the World Wars. Again, that's Purdue University Press by Alex Spencer. Alex, thank you so much for being here. 
My pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat, Mike. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com. I'm Mike Hankins. You can find more of me at MWHankins.com or on Twitter at Hankenstein. That's with a T-I-E-N. All of us are online at BalloonsToDrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which is on Facebook at DigitalFishMedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, check out BalloonsToDrones.com slash contact. And if you'd like to submit an article to us for publication, please check out balloonsadrones.com slash submissions. Thank you and we'll see you next time.